All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start off today with the COVID-19 restrictions in British Columbia as feared extended yesterday through Christmas and the new year. No big family reunions around the Christmas dinner table this year. No New Year's Eve parties. It's all designed to drive down the transmission rate of the virus as the second wave of COVID-19 continues to wash over British Columbia. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday. The sacrifices we make now will protect our loved ones and countless others throughout the province and will keep our strained healthcare system open and functioning for all of us. All right, time to welcome my first guest now, Health Minister Adrian Dix. I'm very pleased you can make the time for us once again. Minister, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, when we take a look at the COVID numbers here the last few days, we do seem to see some slight decrease over the last few days. Given that, was there any consideration given to easing these restrictions to give people a break over Christmas, or was it pretty much a done deal? Well, I think what we needed to do uh, was take a look at the numbers. And yes, there, we've seen some positive response to what the public has done, what everybody listening has done to stop transmission of COVID-19, the physical distancing, the mask wearing, the not having gatherings at home, the not having uh, events in the community, all those have assisted. But the, simply put, the levels of transmission are still much too high. And we can't afford to relent now. So I think the purpose of choosing January 8th was to allow everyone to prepare to understand that this was going to be the situation. We weren't just going to extend it for two more weeks and then everyone would anticipate another change. But to let people know what the situation would be through the Christmas period, through the holiday period, and uh, to make plans accordingly. And so that's the purpose of it. I think it was the right decision based on the evidence because uh, case counts, while they were relatively down in four of the five health authorities, they're quite a bit up in the Northern Health Authorities compared to a couple of weeks ago are still significantly too high, and everybody can see that. Okay, was this a difficult decision for you? We saw the Premier of Manitoba the other day come out and sort of tearfully say, I'm the guy who cancelled Christmas. You know, do you sort of feel that way, given that this is a difficult thing for people and won't be able to gather with their extended families this year? Uh, I would say this, uh, Mike. It's difficult for everybody. It's not about me. I think that uh, I think it's difficult for everybody. All of us have rituals, many of them rituals of faith, but other rituals around the Christmas time that are important to us, and uh, all of those are important, and some of them are going to have to change. I think people are going to still celebrate Christmas in a different way this year. You know, we've celebrated Christmas in times of extraordinary hardship in the past in this country. It has not always been easy to do so, and for many people, it isn't easy now, right? So um, I think we're going to be able to do that and recognize that, but it's going to have to be with our household and virtually, and we're going to also have to, all of us, reach out to people that we know who might be alone over Christmas to make sure that uh, we don't forget people. And this is going to be a challenge, but it is only for now, as uh, Dr. Henry reported yesterday, and we heard from the federal government as well, there is a vaccine coming, actual vaccine right. coming. Yeah. It won't, it won't uh, affect that many people right now because it's going to come more later in 2021. But still, that gives us some hope that maybe uh, next Christmas will be different. All right, speaking of Health Minister Adrian Dix, let's talk a little bit about that Pfizer vaccine. How will that rollout look like? What would that rollout look like in British Columbia? Well, there's two two vaccines in the next little while we're expecting. One is Pfizer and one is Moderna. Pfizer right. has to be kept at very cold temperatures. It's a little less flexible than Moderna, so much more likely to be used in, say, large centers, and Moderna more around the province. We'll be giving a full briefing on what people can expect um, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday or Thursday of this week. Oh. Uh, Dr. Ross Brown is leading our effort, but I'd say this, that, you know, obviously our first step, is to ring fences to try and stop transmission to long-term care. So I don't think it'll be anyone will be surprised to see that uh, people who work in long-term care, people who work in acute care, will be amongst the first to get the vaccine, so that we can stop some of the transmission and the entry into the long-term care that we've seen that is causing so much heartache and so much many problems right now. So we'll look at that at the beginning. Today, Pfizer and uh, uh, the BCCDC and uh, regional health authorities are going through mock drills with uh, how to deal with uh, the vaccine, but we're going to be ready um, to distribute it whenever the federal government, whenever it's licensed by Health Canada, hasn't been licensed yet, and whenever the federal government sends it to us. All right, speaking of the federal government, we saw the Prime Minister yesterday announce 249,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine on the way as early as next week. Have you been told how many of those doses will be coming to B.C.? Well, it will be um, 
over time. So that's 249000 he suggested, by the end of the calendar year. Right, so uh, we will be getting our per capita share of that, which is twelve to thirteen percent in a general sense. And uh, and uh, what you can see is that both that's quite a bit of vaccine. Two hundred forty-nine thousand seems like a lot, but if you think of five million British Columbians and say a tenth of two hundred forty-nine thousand, you'll see that we're well we're under point five of one percent of people would receive it this year. By the end of uh, March, according to the the material produced by the federal government, their expectation right now is that we may be able to immunize immunize about 10% of people in the first quarter. So what this means for people is that all of the restrictions that are in place, the physical distancing and other restrictions, we're going to see those in place for some time to come, that the major bolus, the major amount of vaccine that will come in uh, will come in later in the year. But it's our hope that by this time next year that everyone who wants to have uh, wants to get immunized and can get immunized will get immunized in BC, and we're certainly ready for that. And this is what uh, immunization is what Dr. Body Henry and others in public health do. This is what right. their specialty is, and uh, you bet we're going to be ready for it. Okay, back to the restrictions for a moment. This has been such a difficult year for everyone, and I think a lot of families out there were looking forward to Christmas gatherings, and I'm sure there are there are plans and travel plans being cancelled all around the province what if will people follow the rules here if there is no enforcement like is this basically the honor system when you tell people don't gather with your family at christmas time are you just expecting people to to do that on their own or will there be any enforce actual enforcement of that uh, there will be enforcement but yes we expect people to do that on their own and people have been you know uh, yeah. and i think this is important to recognize and i know i think uh, I think uh, the media has done a really good job of this because often there's a focus on one rally or a couple of uh, churches, say, that, that are gathering in, in sort of defiance of the rules. But the overwhelming majority of people are following the rules because uh, they know what it means for their family members. They know the lo- most likely person they're going to transmit to is someone they love. And so, uh, yes, people will make mistakes, and we've got to be careful not to be too um, uh, too punishing of people who uh, who make mistakes because if you make a mistake or you can you can get COVID-19 without making any mistakes but if you make a mistake and you get COVID-19 that's price enough and so uh, I expect everyone will follow the rules because they know what at stake, what's at stake here and if they need a reminder uh, just reflect on um, on mortality in our province and what it's been for the last week our record on this, on protecting lives, has been better than anywhere else in North America of equivalent jurisdictions, and it still is. But the price is absolutely enormous, and I think that uh, I think people see that, and they're going to be supportive. Thanks for coming on. Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. That is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. I appreciate his time today. All right, welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Let's open the phone lines now if you have questions or comments about the BC COVID-19 restrictions extended as feared yesterday through Christmas and New Year's Eve and the New Year as well. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. I've got Global News reporter Richard Zussman joining me. Hey, Richard. Hey, Spinny. How are you? There's, I'm doing great. There's lots of questions out there about how the rules are applying here through Christmas. Let's take some calls together here. Keith and White Rock. Hi, Keith. Yeah, hey, Mike. Uh, basically, I, I think it's kind of asinine myself. We've we've already made plans. I've talked to probably 10, 20, closer to 20 people, friends, family, and nobody's changing their plans. I mean, to expect people not to socialize at Christmas is is basically ridiculous and there's no way if everyone's doing not everyone i'm saying there might be 10 percent, 15 percent buy-in whatever maybe 20 percent but there's no way they can enforce it you're not going to get cops coming to people's houses on christmas day or christmas eve I just how many how many family members you got coming to your place well it's somewhere else that's another community yeah. but there's probably going to be 15 to 20 right and so you're traveling you're traveling to another community for christmas then right where are you, where are you heading yeah. to I'd rather not say, but let's yeah. just say the valley. Okay. All right. So why right. why do you think so? Why do you think that that's okay for you to do to sort of go against these <laughs> these public health orders and advisories? Well, first of all, it's what Adrian Dick says. The problem right now, he said he he said it. The problem is in acute care and care homes. 
So why aren't we testing people? They don't give out numbers as far as the demographics of who's getting it. You know, the age of people who are being tested, the age of people who are testing positive, the age of people in the hospital. I mean, it's, 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 it's just ridiculous as far as the actual um, breakdown of numbers that the government okay. is giving us. Okay. Okay, I, I hope your fa- I hope your family stays safe, and uh, I, I mean that sincerely. I, I would I would encourage you to maybe reconsider. I mean, my family just just judging from my own experience. Okay, my family we had we had plans as well. We had plans for people to come and visit us. It's all been canceled. So I'm not sure that just that it's only going to be a 10 percent buy-in. I suspect that more people will follow what what the government and the, and the health authorities are saying. But Richard Zussman, your thoughts. Yeah, so it's frustrating to hear what Keith is saying. Keith is probably right. There are a lot of families in British Columbia thinking that way. But one of the things that's fundamentally flawed in what Keith is saying is about the care homes. How do you think the virus gets into the care homes? What's happening is that people are gathering, they are breaking the law, they are breaking the rules, and the virus spreads amongst healthy families like Keith's, and then maybe one of the loved ones he has at his gathering is a care worker. And that care worker is asymptomatic and goes to work in long-term care, and people are yeah. dying because of that. Yeah. And I know it is hard ask to say, cancel your plans, but yeah. it is the law. And he's right. The cops aren't going to bust down doors on Christmas Day. No. You are breaking the law, and you are helping lead to the spread of the virus by saying that you're so, not going to follow... When- the rules when he says he thinks that maybe only 10 percent of the people are going to follow the rules i mean there's no scientific way to quantify this but i got a no. feeling it's more than that i think there's more people buying in this than he than he thinks i Your think thoughts? so too and, and i'm yeah. hearing from a lot of people with very specific questions around how their families can act and the two smitty i'm hearing about more than any other is if you are a grandparent and you care for your grandchild, which is allowed, it's essential, are you then allowed to spend Christmas with that grandchild and family? And right now the answer is no, you cannot. That is non-essential. And we're going to get more details on that. The other one I'm hearing a lot about, Smitty, we may hear this from a caller so I can get into more details on the specifics, but if you're a widow or if you're single and live alone, are you allowed to then go to your family, maybe a family of four or five, and celebrate with them? By the letter of the law, that's also a no, but that may be one where yeah. we hear some clarity over the next few days. That's a tough one. Let's go to Bev on the open line in North Delta. Hi, Bev. Hi, Mike. Um, Hi. I just want to say um, I'm not a snitch, but <laughs> I have a friend who is in her 80s. Um, she lives alone, and she has a... Has a um, a son and a daughter-in-law and a grandson. They are getting their house renovated, and they are going to go to my friend's place for a week to stay while their place is getting fixed. In the meantime, they go to work, both of them, and the kid goes to school. Now, I know that that's not right. Um, Is that against the rules, Richard, technically? that, That is a really interesting scenario, Uh And I'm not sure it is against the rules. It it is similar in essence to when we have a situation of somebody coming home from university. So that's a situation that comes up a lot. If somebody's away from university and they move home and are back with their family, they can live with their family. If this friend of yours is moving in with her extended family during renovations, it may be seen as essential. We're working on a frequently asked questions for the Global News website that we're hopefully going to have up likely tomorrow, as well as a story on the news hour about these different scenarios. So that's an interesting one. But I don't think it is um, in complete disregard of the rules. Obviously, you need to each person again, this is all about common sense, cutting down on the spread of the virus. But in that sense, uh, that could be okay under the rules, although it's a little bit of a gray area. And again, if you're worried about the spread, don't do it. Like, okay. don't try to find gray areas and loopholes. But if it's a necessity, then then the province understands that. Squeeze another one in here. Greg on the line in North Vancouver. Hi, Greg. I have a question about uh, distinguishing indoors and outdoor activity. So, um, and there seems to be conflicting reporting in the media. Can you gather outdoors with someone who's not in your immediate household and never have an indoor, um, never be in conditions where you're indoors together. Yes or, yes or no? Okay, Richard, he's got a minute left. Richard, you know? 
Short answer is no. There is a situation where you can go for a walk with somebody who is outside of your household, but you cannot have those backyard gatherings with your safe six only outdoors. That is against the rules. Outdoor activities are now banned. I know it's been inconsistent on that and there's some confusion, but no, you cannot gather outside with what we used to define as our safe six, but you could grab a buddy and go for a walk but yeah. it has to be a walk only. You can't go to the pub afterward. You can't mingle in the backyard. You can't have a barbecue. Those okay. things are, are against the rules. Richard, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Minnie. My Appreciate it. Richard Zussman, Global News reporter. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking now about the COVID-19 restrictions in our province. Extended yesterday as feared and expected through Christmas and the new year. No large Christmas gatherings. People being asked to cancel their plans. No New Year's Eve parties. Face masks now mandatory in the province and indoor public spaces. That's been the case for several weeks now. Some people don't want to follow the rules. Some people, I think it's clearly a minority, willing to say to hell with it. I won't follow the rules. We saw an anti-mask rally on the weekend. We'll, We'll see more of those. I had a caller on the show this morning who just said straight up, I'm not doing it. I am traveling out of town this Christmas for a large family gathering. That's what he's going to do. He said he knows other families who are doing the same. They're not going to follow the rules. Okay, for frontline healthcare workers who see the impact of this virus up close, who know intimately the danger this virus presents, this is frustrating for them. And more of them are are bravely speaking out about it, including my next guest, Kim Carlson. She is a nurse in the Fraser Health region, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hiya, Kim. Hi, Mike. Thanks for uh, bringing me on to the show. You bet. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for your service on the front lines here of of this continuing crisis here. How has COVID impacted your job? I I know that you you, you can't talk in details about cases you see up close for privacy and i respect that but generally speaking how is this how has this virus impacted your work it's definitely brought an element of the unknown so in the spring for sure when it was brand new you know we know nothing so we went into this seeing um information on the news sort of this mystery of it so everyone was very very fearful then And then we got to know a little bit more about it. We started working with it a little bit more closely, but then the fall came and the second wave has been horrendous. There are much more cases, much more deaths, much more outbreaks in hospitals and long-term care. It's really, really hard to be on the inside and then be on the outside watching people not do what they're being told to do. Right. What's like that? What's that like for frontline nurses like yourself when when you see the you see the carnage, you see the damage up, up close? I mean, that's got to be that's got to be wearing on you mentally, spiritually. Yeah, for sure. I definitely my heart goes out to all of the staff that are out there, whether it's long term care, hospitals. It's heartbreaking to see how much death there is right now. And we hear the numbers, but it is hard to see it on the inside. I can't imagine what it's like for long-term care workers who are having to see numerous residents die that they've cared for for years and years. Okay, we saw this anti-mask rally on the weekend in Vancouver. It's not the first one we've seen, and, and I'm sure it probably will not be the last. This one seemed to get a little bit more attention because of the presence of Mark Donnelly there, the uh, the very well-known Vancouver Canucks national anthem singer who showed up and he, and he sang at this rally. And I want to get your thoughts on that, Kim. Let me play this for you, this short clip of Mark Donnelly speaking at this rally. And then I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Here he is. What was originally sold as a 15-day hunkering down sprint for the common good has turned into a 10-month marathon from hell where the finish line is constantly being moved farther into the distance. Okay, I'm not sure what his point is there because, yeah, it is a marathon, but for some reason he believes that you shouldn't wear a mask to try and shorten the marathon. But when you see these rallies, Kim, and and you see high-profile people like that speaking out at an anti-mask rally, what goes through your mind? Honest, it's infuriating. I think everyone has the right to their beliefs, whatever they might be. I am frustrated to see see that we are allowing these people to continue to gather. 
and that they're, you know, none of the rules that are enforced on any of us or any of, say, you know, you can ticket at a party, but they're not ticketing these groups. So I just find it's a slap in the face to healthcare, to people dying of COVID, to the families left behind. It's just, it's kind of appalling to see. Yeah, what would you say to someone like if you had an if you had an opportunity to talk to someone at one of these rallies? What would you say to like an anti-masker? Oh, I try so hard not to engage them, but <laughs> I I I think I would just plead with them to look beyond their own selves. That we need to do this as a community, as a province, as a nation, just for a bit more time, if they can just look past their own frustrations and understand that we are all going through this together, we're all losing, we're all frustrated, but we need to keep trudging through. Speaking of Kim Carlson, she's a nurse. She works in the Fraser Health region. Uh, So when you see these rallies, what, you think the the police should go in there and break up these rallies or something? I do, yeah. And I do think um, the police are giving very mixed messages. Even in my Vancouver Sun article, they said that they support the right to peaceful protest. That's fine under normal circumstances. But the bottom line is that they also are contravening when public health orders are being broken, say, at parties. So it's a very mixed message to not break it up. But I also understand that they are under the governance of our province, too. So I do think this is a bit of a political problem, too. And the VPD are kind of caught in the middle as well. Do you think, like, you know, if the cops moved in and and broke up an anti-mask rally like that, that it would, in some ways, it would almost empower them because then they would think, like, well, they're almost like martyrs for the cause, and it would get a whole ton more media interviews. I, I just wonder if it would just make it make the situation worse. It, you know what? I can I can totally respect their point that yeah, they are yeah. worried about stirring up the fire even more. But what does it communicate to the rest of the you know public health hoarder following residents of right. say Vancouver or BC when they are trying to do their best? to follow these orders so that we can get out of this sooner than later. But we are allowed to gather in protest. But we can't, I can't go see my grandma, but I could go to a protest. Right. What do you think about people who are saying, just outright saying, I'm not going to follow the rules this Christmas? I mean, we saw the health authorities yesterday say that the COVID-19 restrictions are extended through Christmas, through the new year, into January. So a lot of people being told, cancel your plans. No big family gatherings at Christmas, no New Year's Eve gatherings. And yet some people, I think, will just say, to hell with it. I'm, I'm not following the rules. I, I had a caller on the open line here on the show this morning and said, I, I don't care. I'm going to travel to the valley for a big, large family gathering at Christmas. I don't care what the rules are. And he, and he thinks other people will do the same. Now, I think that's a minority of people. But what, what do you think? Some people clearly will break the rules. What do you think of that? Yeah, and I I sort of agree with you, Mike. I want to believe that that is a minority of the population. I think it's disgusting, selfish behavior. This is not forever. It it is frustrating. We all are really sad about Christmas, but just put your selfishness aside for one Christmas and do the right thing for an entire community. Yeah, when you see these type of rallies and you see people speaking out like that, what is your fear here that people will think that it's, oh, maybe I can break the rules? Maybe I can bend, get around them and make it worse. Yeah, I, you know, I always fear that these people are growing and growing in numbers, um, that misinformation is growing, which is really unfortunate because there is good information as we're learning more and more. And there are good people giving the right information. But yeah, I fear that the frustration of people having to live through this is going to draw them to these groups. Okay, last question for you, Kim. Like when you're as a frontline nurse, is your greatest concern, I mean, you talked about the deaths that you've seen up close, which is obviously mm-hmm. tragic, but mm-hmm. there's also the potential for hospital systems to get overwhelmed, like with sick people, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. is, is that one of your, like, can you sum it up as a frontline healthcare worker? What is, for, for people out there who are wondering to myself, I had a guy say to me the other day, the, the, uh, the death rate for this virus is like 2%. What are you worried about? What should people worry about? Like as someone who's on the front lines of the system, why should we worry about this pandemic? I think people should be worrying about it because it's not just about the death rate. One, it's terrible that we're losing senior citizens. These people have given years and years of their lives 
They've given sacrifices. They've raised all of us. And we deserve to show them some respect by protecting them because they are the ones most likely to die. But also, there's a lot we don't know about this virus. There are people who are long haulers that got it in the spring. They're still suffering. And they're not all seniors. There are people my age that have gotten it and are still struggling with symptoms eight months later. So people need to be afraid of what we don't know about this virus as well. Also, we're seeing more and more healthcare workers get sick. And as healthcare workers get sick, that means they're off the front lines and our healthcare system can't function when lots of us are off work. Kim, thank you for your service on the front lines here as, as a nurse in, in the Fraser Health region. I'm really, really grateful to you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay, you bet. That is Kim Carlson. She is a nurse. She works in the Fraser Health region. Welcome back. Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine now. It was an historic day in the United Kingdom this morning with a retired a British shop clerk, 90-year-old Margaret Keenan. She received the first shot in Britain's COVID-19 vaccination program. 6.31 a.m. British time this morning. That's when the first shot was given to the COVID-19 vaccine in the UK. Here's British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Really very moving to hear her say that she's doing it for Britain. And, and that's exactly right, because she's protecting herself, but she's also helping to protect the entire country. In Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales, in England, people are having the vaccine for the first time. And it will gradually make a huge, huge difference. But I stress gradually because, you know, we're not there yet. We haven't defeated this virus yet. Okay, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking this morning on V-Day, they're calling it, Vaccine Day in the United Kingdom. The vaccine set to come to Canada, too. Let's talk about it now with Jason Tetro. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's a microbiologist with many years of research experience. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Jason. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. There's so much excitement ar- around the vaccine. What are your first thoughts when you heard that the UK is now rolling out its vaccine program starting today? We saw the first shots given uh, in Britain this morning. It's a big day, right? Well, I mean, other than just the symbolic nature of the fact that you've got Will and Mags being the first people getting it, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, just honestly, how much more British can you get? Yeah. Um, but from the perspective of the vaccine itself, what it's saying to me is that they really trust this particular vaccine. I mean, seriously, if you didn't trust it, you'd probably plug it into a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old. But I mean, they're putting it, the, the first recipients are in their 90s. And, and, and I mean, that in itself is such a, a statement of the safety and efficacy of this particular vaccine. So, I mean, there's so much that can be unpackaged just from that one simple moment that it's it's... To me, it's just not only fascinating, but also incredibly encouraging. Of course, the vaccines have been fast-tracked, right? Is there any, is there any danger with this sort of warp speed process that we've gone through here in, in, in putting these vaccines through trial and approving them so quickly? Well, in the reason that this doesn't bother me as much as perhaps some of the previous vaccines is simply that this particular vaccine is incredibly, actually fully biodegradable. Okay, so all it is, is it's a little piece of genetic material that's going into your skin. And thanks to the lipid shell, it's going to attach to a particular cell inside your body. And the genetic material is going to go inside your body and ask for permission to create a protein. And when that protein is made, it's going to come out to the top of the cell and your immune system is going to recognize it and go, hey, never seen you before and become memorized as to what that looks like. And then whenever it happens again, and that's where the booster comes in, the immune system's like, hey, I know who you are, and then majorly sets up a beautiful reaction, and we can actually see this based on the data that we have seen from prior phase trials, that protects you from this particular virus causing any kind of um, mild or even severe infection. So from my perspective, it's so simple that it doesn't surprise me that we fast-tracked it. Yeah, it's really exciting. And when you take a look at the the trial results and the success we've seen in the trials of 94, 95% effective, what does that mean to you as an expert? When you see a 94% effective vaccine, what does that mean on the ground here in terms of fighting this virus? Well, I mean, it's no Ebola virus vaccine, obviously, because that one was 100%, right? Mm. No, seriously, what I'm 
what this means is that the majority of people who are going to get vaccinated are going to end up being safe from uh, the, the mild and definitely the moderate to severe symptoms of, of, of COVID-19. And really, right. that's what we want right now. Because as we start developing that elimination threshold, a lot of people call it herd immunity, um, we're going to essentially start to see this virus or the vaccine being used to get people that immune response that's necessary to have that protection. So the reality is that any kind of concerns that people might have obviously are being um, you know, steered away either through the results that we've seen in the trials or just simply the fact that Will and Mags are the first people to get this vaccine. And so in that sense, I think we should be really comf comfortable, comf confident, and also optimistic about where the next five to six months are going to take us. It's still going to be August before this pandemic's over. So, you know, let, yeah. let's not try and, and surprise ourselves into thinking February 14th, we're going to be able to go outside. It's not. But it's definitely something that is starting the bowl rolling to the end. Right. Speaking to Jason Tetro about COVID-19 vaccines on the way. Let's have another listen to another clip here, Jason, of uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And here he is talking about the potential for some people to refuse to take the vaccine. The anti-vaxxers out there, which is not insignificant at all. Here's Boris Johnson on that. There are those obviously who feel that a, a vaccine is something they object to uh, politically or, or for ideological reasons uh, or for medical reasons, I, I think they're totally wrong. I know that there are loads of people who, who count themselves anti-vaxxers. That's totally the wrong approach. Uh, it's safe. It's the right thing to do. It's good for you and it's good for the whole of the country. Okay, if there's a significant minority of people, Jason, who refuse to take the vaccine, does that prevent prevent us uh, getting beyond this pandemic if we don't achieve herd immunity or if, or if a significant number of people just don't get vaccinated? To be honest, at this point, I don't think we really need to think about it or even care about it. Because mm. if you start looking at uh, the file footage of these people who are out there marching around, the majority of them are fairly healthy and probably would end up being very low on the list when it comes to um, who gets the vaccine first. Right, so, right. Let's just keep focus on getting that vaccine out there and getting the public to really appreciate it. Let's show how safe it is. Let's show how effective it is. Let's watch the COVID numbers decrease. And by the time we finally get to these individuals who essentially might be saying all sorts of things, the data itself, just from our own observation of the vaccine, will counter them. So it'll make it very difficult for them to make any impact outside of their echo chambers, which is really where they, sh yeah. they belong. Okay, speaking of the vaccine's arrival and who will get the vaccine first, let's have a listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry here uh, talking about the vaccine and when it's going to come to British Columbia. We have some very good news about an upcoming vaccine that we can all take some heart in. As we all do our part now, knowing that the availability of vaccine to protect those people who are most at risk is actually just days away now. Next week, we expect to receive our first delivery here in BC of the Pfizer vaccine, as you heard announced federally this morning. Okay, who would get the first shots, do you think, Jason? Well, so there is this National Advisory Committee for Immunization, and they have basically followed the same rules or or. I guess, guidelines that we see around the world. And so now that we know that we have one particular set of guidelines that everybody's following, let's just sort of look at that. And this is from the UK. We start with residents in long-term care homes and those right. who are caring for them, people above 80 years of age and frontline healthcare workers. They're basically yeah. the first wave. Um, and then we start getting into people who are above 70 years old and extremely vulnerable due to pre-existing conditions. And if you look at the BC CDC data, those are the ones that unfortunately have led to the difference between what was simply, uh, you know, a number of cases happening and then the hospitalizations going up. So they're very important as well. Once we start getting into March and probably into April and that, that's when we're going to start seeing the rest of the population coming through. Although I believe that those who have pre-existing conditions that could lead to severe disease are also going to be, um, you know, preferentially given the vaccine before the rest of the population. This is going to take time, obviously. Yeah. It may still take us till the summer, maybe even the fall. But at the end of the day, as long as we're doing our best to be able to provide that protection to the most vulnerable in that order, I think we're going to be fine.
Okay, Jason, here's what I'll do right now. Jump in there. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and talk more with my guest, Jason Tetro. He's a microbiologist. Terry in Abbotsford. Hiya, Terry. Oh, g'day. Uh, just wanted to say to Jason, that was an uh, awesome explanation of how the vaccine works. I've, uh, yeah. I finally got it. Um, I had a question, like, we've seen how COVID has, uh, like, the scientists of the world have got together and, or, you know, they've worked on this. Could could the scientists of the world do similar things where, like, maybe they go after Parkinson's or cancer or, like, is there a way that they can work together and forget about profits and, and, and tackle some of these other big uh, things that are going on? Jason. Well, you, you know, sometimes serendipity is is what happens. Um, the vaccines that we're currently using for COVID-19 were actually developed uh, back about 30 years ago. Uh, I was involved in some of this uh, as gene therapy for chronic diseases. So the fact is, is that what we're getting right now to prevent us from having this particular infection, we're supposed to be able to help us to prevent cancer and also to uh, prevent uh, chronic diseases like thalassemia. Um, and But the thing is, is that sort of everything changes over time and we start repurposing what we already know. And this is what's going on right now. So will we be able to see something that's going to help uh, increase dopamine levels in individuals with Parkinson's? I believe so. Are we going to see uh, in, uh, potential therapies that are going to help people increase their myelin in multiple sclerosis? I believe so. Are we going to be able to find ways to um, you know, shrink cancers using other types of viruses? I believe so. So all of these are currently in motion. It's just unfortunately as we saw with this particular vaccine, it takes time. And that can be a generation's worth of work uh, just to make one small step. Okay, back to your phone calls. Danielle in Surrey. Hi. Hey there. Um, just wondering when they started testing the vaccine and what the phases of vaccine testing are. Jason. Yeah, so the vaccines have been tested now for approximately 10 months. Uh, it starts off, actually, before that, um, there are what we call preclinical trials. And this is where we have um, mouse and, and sometimes uh, primate uh, models to be able to test it out. And some of the papers actually show us that. Then it goes into phase one, where it's a very small amount of people, uh, and we're just testing for safety and efficacy. Um, and then the phase two is to find out whether it actually is beneficial in terms of helping to reduce the levels of infection in a small population. Sometimes that includes a challenge, but <laughs> that's not particularly ethical with respect to this virus. So we didn't do that. And then phase what is three, that, by the way? I've heard about that, a challenge trial. What is that? Well, basically what you do is you shove the virus up somebody's nose. Yeah, you give it to them deliberately, and right? Yeah, you give it to the, yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. this used to be something that was very common back in the 50s and 60s is that you would do these challenges. And you can see all these papers about what it was like when they did human observations of people who were given rhinovirus or norovirus or, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. Not necessarily the most ethical thing to do. And then phase three is where you have it in the population. And that's the results that we're sort of hearing about the 94, 95% um, effectiveness. Right. Because what they're doing is they're trying to find out how many people get the virus and then if they got the virus, were, were they given the placebo or were they given uh, the actual vaccine itself? And that's what we you get think, those numbers. Do you believe that people can be confident that the, vi that the vaccine is safe? Like it's gone through all the required trials. I mean, everything's been fast-tracked, obviously, but has it, in, in, your, yeah. in your opinion, has been thoroughly tested. Well, that's right. the thing is that when you start looking at the interim reports, you start thinking, mm, maybe we don't have all the information. But right. what I do know is that when it comes to these rolling and fast track reviews, basically, as soon as the company has the data, it goes directly to the uh, regulator. So everybody has this, the UK, Canada, the United States, the European Union, they all have this data and they're doing um, their own reviews as we speak. Right. The UK has done this first. But by the same respect, um, you know, this is also something where we'll probably see other countries following suit very, very quickly, including Canada. Okay. Maria in Surrey. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my mom's 84, and she's got a really weak immune system with pre-existing mm -hmm. conditions. And she's not really receptive to taking the... Um, the shot when it comes out, she says that she's reacted badly to the flu shot and yeah. where she was very ill. She's, and I'm worried for her. So do, how well do you know how safe this vaccine is going to be? Okay, Jason. 
Yes. So we know from the phase three studies how safe it is. And uh, both the Pfizer and also the Moderna, which is coming out, uh, have been tested in the elderly. Now, here's the thing. Watch what's happening in the UK. Yeah. The, it's going to take us a few weeks before we have any of these vaccines come to us. And in that time, we get to see what's happening in the UK because today right. is V-Day, as, as you mentioned earlier. And so we can find out if there are any side effects. We can find out if anybody has problems, whether they have weak or strong immune systems. I mean, they're testing it directly in the elderly with Will and Mags and so many others. So let's just look and see what happens. And it gives us the ability to have that confidence that it is safe. And as for, um, you know, any person who may have concerns, it's totally understandable. And this is where you and your healthcare professional can have that discussion, because maybe it might be better off not having it in this first wave and just sticking to making sure that you're protected through the traditional ABC methods, airway protection uh, bubbles and also contacts. Interesting. We just got a minute left here, Jason. But, you know, the, the Trudeau government's been criticized here for a slow or a slow rollout. We're behind some other countries. But I don't know, in some ways, it's maybe that bit of a silver lining if we see other countries get to go first and we can see how it works out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. am totally um, happy about the fact that other countries uh, are going to be doing this before us, because if yeah. there are going to be any issues, we're going to learn from them before anything happens here. But also, it's not slow. It's fast track. So for the yeah. last 10 <laughs> months, we're going too fast. And now all of a sudden we're slow. We're come slow. on. <laughs> if that isn't a political argument, and I'm not a politician, but come all on. Right. All right, Jason, thanks for coming on. Ain't no problem. Take I appreciate a lot. That is Jason Tetro. He is a microbiologist. Love having him on the show. He is the host of the super awesome science show, which I encourage you to check out. Okay, this is a tough one for sure. Difficult time of year for this type of shutdown to be imposed. Christmas and Hanukkah seasons are here. Most churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples are following the orders, but some are not. All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Kara Zwiebel. She is from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and she's the uh, director of their fundamental freedoms program there and i'm very pleased to welcome her to the show hi kara hi thanks for having me thanks a lot for coming on is this a difficult issue in your mind do you think the churches who are opening uh, their doors to worshipers in defiance of a public health order do they have potentially a legal case to make there on freedom of religion grounds so i mean i think there is a legal argument to be made about um you know about whether or the public health orders that address restrictions on religious services and gatherings are are constitutional and and um i'm not i'm not supporting those who are you know breaking the law regardless of um of what the order says but i do think right. that there's something to you know to, to potentially challenge there in the courts. yeah i mean if you take a look at the charter of rights and freedoms i mean the freedom of religions is right there at the top one of the most fundamental ones enshrined in the charter right yeah, freedom of religion is is considered one of our one of our fundamental freedoms, and right. um, I mean all all of the rights in the charter are subject to to limits. Yes. So the government, you know, can take steps to limit them. The question I think here is whether those limits in this case are reasonable and necessary, especially as compared to some of the you know the other limits that we look at. Yeah, I've gotten a. A lot of opinions and communications on this on both sides of it, as I, I suspect, suspect you have as well. I've had some ch uh, church members who have uh, contacted me and said, it's not just the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it's also uh, the Human Rights Code, the Canadian Human Rights Code, the BC Human Rights Code. You can't be discriminated against on the, on the grounds of uh, uh, your religion. Do you think that is mm -hmm. arguable? Um, well, I mean, the human rights codes do protect against discrimination on the basis of a number of grounds, including religion. Um, yeah. You'd have to figure out, though, whether, I mean, here, in this case, everyone, regardless of, um, you know, of their religious affiliation, is, is being treated in the same way in terms of, um, you know, not being allowed to access those services. So I'm not sure what the argument under the human rights code would look like, but yeah. um, there there might be something there. I mean, the question is whether, I guess, you know, what the comparison is that, that we're trying to draw. Right. Speaking to Kara Zwiebel from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, has this uh, been tested in court in any jurisdictions in Canada? To your knowledge, where other provinces have shut down religious celebrations and have any churches actually gone to court to try and overturn it? So um, just this weekend, uh, a, a church in uh, Manitoba 
tried to uh, went to court, um, they were having services actually um, drive-in services, which was right. also contrary to to their public health order. Um, so this was these were services where no one was getting out of their cars, the windows were rolled up the whole time, but that it was still in contravention of the orders. Um, and what they did was they they got a judge to hear the case on an urgent basis, but. The judge didn't deal with sort of the the whole case. Um, the the first determination was just whether this particular church could continue to have its services, and and the test for getting that kind of injunction is quite high. So that yeah. church was not successful. Um, but but that broader issue of whether the actual public health order is is constitutional is something that um, that court in Manitoba will consider. Just um, it just hasn't done so yet. Right. And as you mentioned, that was for a drive-in service, right? I was reading about mm-hmm. that one. So they would have a religious service up on a sort of a big jumbotron type of movie screen, and people were yeah. driving in like a drive-in movie, and the court said even that was not allowed. Yeah, so the, I mean, really what the court said is, we don't have a good reason to give you an exception right, right. now. So yeah. um, they, they will still look at whether that order you know, can stand. And I think, I think the government in that case does have a hard case to try to make, to make out that this is, um, you know, a necessary prohibition for the public health reasons. We're in such a unique time here in our country with this COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm sure there's a lot of issues in play uh, for the, at the Civil Liberties Association, for sure. Like, for example, with the, with the vaccine coming, uh, I was mm-hmm. reading in Ontario with some Ontario officials suggesting that, well, if you if you're maybe you're an anti-vaxxer or for whatever reason you decide you do not want to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Well, would the government then be within your rights to say, well, you're not allowed to attend a public school or would an airline be allowed to say you're not allowed to get on an airplane if you haven't been vaccinated? Is that a potential uh, jeopardy going forward here from, a, you know, from a civil liberties point of view? I mean, definitely there are, there's lots of civil liberties issues that arise out of um, some of the, the conversations we've been having around the vaccine. I, I find that it's it's really um, speculative and not helpful to talk about these kinds of potential restrictions, which mm-hmm. would really, um, I mean, which really are not even kind of worth thinking about until um, until we we have until we know more about the vaccine and until actually we have broad access to it because we know that that's going to take a very long time we you know we're starting to hear that we may get uh, some people may be getting the vaccine soon in Canada but um, when and whether it will be available to everyone and and you know accessible to everyone I think we're a long ways down the road from that and and I'm not sure why we're looking for ways to kind of you know um divide people and, and restrict people's uh, freedoms. And I, and I think it's really dangerous to, to categorize anyone who's, you know, hesitant about this particular vaccine as an anti-vaxxer because, you know, this is a newer product and I'm not suggesting that we don't have good safety protocols and that, um, you know, testing isn't rigorous, but um, there are differences about, about something that's just been developed and, and something that we're right. still learning about as compared to um you know, some of the other vaccines that have been around for decades. Okay, Kara, stand by here as we take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more about this. My guest is Kara Zwiebel from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Let's go right to your phone calls. Rod on the line. He's a pastor in Kelowna. Hi, Rod. Hello, Mike. Hi. Uh, For the the record, we are not defying the orders, but I I think I hear enough from people who uh, are in the church community to maybe give a perspective as to why uh, there is some of that happening. Sure. So, for example, in our congregation, we have, um, you know, a, a larger contingent of elderly people who, um, many of them traveled here, immigrated here from Europe after the war. They lived through unbelievable times. For them, uh, number one, church was their life. That's their, their whole lives revolved around a community of faith. For them, it was and is absolutely essential. And then number two, they, given what they've lived through, they can't understand how something like this could take away what's essential to them. The other thing that they see, and this is what I'm told, is that when we go out into our community even now, uh, for example, I was out with my wife at a restaurant here um, last week, and we just see what's happening in restaurants. People are spaced properly. People are 
you know, these places are, are booming. And yet in a church where we, we, for example, we had 50 people socially distanced, following all the rules, it just does not make sense that that gets shut down while all these other things in the community and in the cities can continue. That's what people are getting to a point where they're seeing that and they're just saying, you know what? Uh, this makes absolutely no sense, and there are no good answers for that. Yeah, Rod, thank thank you for a good call. Kara, what do you think about that? Because I, I hear this very often that churches in British Columbia feel like, many of them do, that feel like maybe they've been singled out because they see that restaurants are still open, bars are still open, you can go to a crowded Walmart, but you can't go to a church. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think those are. I mean, those are good questions to to raise and good questions to be asking our, our government and our public health authorities. You know, on what basis is this decision being made? And um, I think we've seen sort of throughout the pandemic that governments, you know, clear, clearly there are different priorities that are in place for different people. And I think, you know, on an individual level, we all also have things that are more or less important to us. Some people couldn't care less if restaurants are open, but. Um, you know, uh, being able to to go to church or being able to um, visit with family in their homes is something that's really important to them. So I think asking those questions of government and requiring them to, you know, to to provide us with a a good rational reason why this is the case is is something that we're, we're entitled to in a democracy. Let's go to Marshall on the line calling from Kamloops. Hi. Hi, I just wanted to say thanks to uh, Cars Weeble for making that point about uh, what needs to stop is lumping everybody in a basket of anti uh, who just have questions or objections or have actually done some research on the topics in question. I mean, we hear it all the time is hostility inherent in ask, anti-mask or anti-vax. For most of us with questions, is not even true. And I would like to thank her for pointing that out. And I would like the media to actually take up her challenge on that because this morning on the show, I've heard anti-vax or anti-mask or applied when it's not true and it's it's quite a dangerous place for our media to start calling these names and throwing people in a basket um what what are you saying what what are you saying is not true what's not true well uh the the labels of anti-masker and anti-vaxxer just because somebody has questions about this vaccine doesn't make them anti-vaxxer i have had experiences which i believe may be because of the vaccine and the family that have triggered some severe responses. I have questions and concerns about vaccines. I am by no means an anti-vaxxer, and I don't wish to be persecuted as an anti-vaxxer. And the same thing with the masks. You know, there's all this talk about uh, uh, Mark Donnelly or the singer for the Canucks singing an anti-mask rally. But was it an anti-mask rally, or was it a, a freedom rally where people are very concerned about what's happening to us? Okay, Marshall, thanks for the call. Well, I, don't, I don't know. One of the things that occurs to me on the mask debate and people will say well it's my freedom to not be forced to wear a mask and my freedoms are being eroded when i'm told to put a mask on is if you look at the bigger picture if the virus continues to spread and then the government responds by even stricter lockdown measures i I think in british columbia we're fortunate that most of the economy is still open you can still go to a restaurant you still go to a store uh, you can still go to a lot of places, but in other parts of the pro- other parts of the country, a lot of these things have been shut down. But they could mm-hmm. get shut down here too. And one of the reasons that people will wear a mask is to try and prevent that. So I, that's one of the things that I'm always trying to keep in mind on this: is that if we're really concerned about our our freedoms, then if we want to preserve them, then I think wearing the mask is a good, actually a good way to do it because we stop, try to check and ch- stop the spread of the virus that could potentially erode our freedoms even further. Sadly, we're out of time here, Cara. Um, we'll have just have to have you back because we've got uh, lots more calls that we didn't get to. So let's do it again. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Nobody likes having to pay more than they have to, but next year will be tough on all of us. When we're out shopping for groceries, a new report released this morning suggests Canadians will see a larger-than-average jump in prices. Our show contributor John Jang now has more. Good morning, Mike. 2020 has been such an awful year that it really shouldn't surprise us to know we're going to be dealing with the lingering effects 
well into the next year. And you're going to know what I'm talking about when you visit the grocery store as early as next month. According to the latest Canada Food Prices Report for 2021, the average Canadian family of four will be paying almost $700 more on groceries next year because of a variety of factors, including, of course, the ongoing impact of COVID-19. Now, joining us to provide analysis on this report is Professor James Verkamen, Professor of Food and Resource Economics with the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC. Professor, uh, what is your reaction to this report, seeing that many Canadians right now are facing such financial uncertainty as they head into 2021? Right. Well, I guess, you know, to put it into context, every year food prices do go up, but so does inflation. So we're kind of not really aware of it. But this year, I think in particular, uh, the food prices are going to be projected to go up a bit more than normal. And of course, this is a very unusual year income-wise. So I think we're going to feel the pinch much more than in normal years. So yeah, definitely something to be concerned about. Do we know exactly what is going to cause this big jump in prices? Well, um, you know, every year there's various factors, you know, whether our, our dollar weakens, whether labor costs go up, whether, you know, uh, supermarket retailer margins go up a little bit. So there's a whole variety of factors. So it's kind of hard to be specific. You know, there's a very sophisticated forecasting model that's being used. But uh, one of the things I think that's a bit concerning is that the categories. So we're seeing, uh, for example, veggies are supposed to go up, be, are projected to go up between four and a half and six and a half percent. And as we all know, we need to be eating more veggies. That's the most nutritious part of our diet. So it's kind of unfortunate that that's going to be projected to have the highest uh, uh, increase. And that's been the challenge, trying to eat healthier throughout the pandemic, something that I admit I still need to do a better job of doing. But I'm sure that a lot of people listening right now are thinking, you know, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet next year. So I might not be able to get those veggies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's just not here in, in, in lower British Columbia, too. The northern communities, which are really have very expensive food to start with, are going to even feel, you know, the whack of this even more. So, yeah, very much a challenge. I mean, uh, the other category that's supposed to go up substantially is meat, you know, 4.5 to 6.5 percent, you know, and that for some people, that's a signal that maybe continuing down that path of eating just a little bit less meat and a little bit more more veggies. So that's, you know, one option. So there are some uh, ability to kind of, you know, make some changes, but you're right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of things are out of consumer control uh, as to why these prices are gone up. Now, when we say the prices go up, we're talking about what you'll actually see on your grocery bill, but is there anything the stores or the suppliers can do to help reduce this big jump for next year? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, of course, there's this long-standing discussion about how do we get more uh, local food into our supply chains. You know, the supermarkets uh, love to have the efficiency of, you know, the trucks coming in from California and Mexico and places like that because it works very well. And it's harder to deal with the, sort of the local supply because it's kind of, you know, seasonal. So, you know, uh, this might be an opportunity if uh, for local producers to sort of start making inroads and getting consumers to, you know, purchase a bit more locally and, and support farmers markets a bit more. So maybe that's a bit of the silver lining. Well, let's stay on that for a moment. Finding a silver lining, that's been another challenge this entire year. So now if we know ahead of time that groceries are going to cost more on average next year, maybe this encourages people to start thinking about growing their own produce at home, fruits and vegetables, and getting that started soon because this does take a bit of time. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's not just time, but it's, I think, his experience. I think the first few years, people might feel frustrated with all their hard work didn't turn out because some weevil came along or something like that. So I think that's where neighbors can come in, neighbors who have experience and, you know, community plots and those sort of things. So I think there's a momentum effect once it starts off and people sort of feel like there's just enjoyment in doing that, then, you know, it's going to be a lot easier to start to reduce the grocery bill by uh, producing some of our own food. Now, apart from working on our foraging skills, uh, is there anything else Canadians can do to reduce those costs next year? Well, of course, just the obvious things. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to suggest that we should eat out less because I think our restaurant sector right now needs all the support that we can give them. But uh, it does add up, to, especially these fees that we pay, you know, when you get the Uber driver to deliver the Uber Eats and um, all these things, you don't think about it as much, but uh, it does add up. So, you know, I think uh, consumers have gotten used to now maybe preparing more food at home during these sort of conditions. And I think we definitely do want to go back to enjoying uh, eating out and that, but maybe maybe just trying to do a little bit more cooking at home. Uh, it, it's amazing how we can quickly bring the grocery bill down if you start to just uh, cook with raw ingredients rather than with processed food. And I'll just say this, cooking your own food can be really enjoyable too. But once again, uh, I need to do a better job of doing this more myself. But it's actually fun to do when things go according to plan. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And, 
you know, I think as we look ahead, uh, you know, it's just, we're going to definitely get through this COVID and uh, things will return to much more normal. But, you know, unfortunately, we still have this problem with climate change and we have problems with California and, and wildfires and drought. So our extensive reliance on, you know, imported produce from California and Mexico and places like that, I think, you know, we we have to be going forward, find alternatives. And, you know, until consumers are, are willing to kind of uh, start to support the local industry more and, and supermarkets are willing to sort of adjust their supply chains, it's going to take, um, you know, it's going to take some nudging. So maybe this is sort of the, you know, impetus that will start doing that. Always important to buy local. So wouldn't that be a delight to, to see more local organic food being made available at the stores? Not only that, you know, it's been a real shame because we used to have a very uh, active abattoir, you know, meat slaughter um, processing sector here in British Columbia years ago. But with the higher standards, that's been all eliminated. So as you remember in March, you know, when the Cargill plant in High River went down and, you know, they supply most of British Columbia because we don't do we don't slaughter it ourselves. So I would really love to see sort of, you know, small scale you know, abattoirs come back where we can actually consume our locally produced and slaughtered meat rather than having to import it from Alberta. He is Professor James and Professor of Food and Resource Economics with the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC. Professor, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. All right, good job on that one, John. John Jang joins me now. John, interesting interview there. Yeah, hang on to your wallets here with food prices uh, set to jump. There's just one more cost pressure for a, a lot of people. But it was interesting to hear him talk about that uh, delivery services like Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, DoorDash becoming super popular. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are using them these days, but there's some cheaper options out there, I hear. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Uh, we, we've talked about this on the show in the past about how these delivery service apps are so popular, and yet it's not always beneficial for you because there's a service charge. And for the restaurants, they sometimes have to take a 30% hit because uh, these services are offering the delivery. So yeah. in Vancouver specifically, there's a brand new service called from2.ca. It's a website-only program right now where about 20 to 25 local restaurants are all offered uh, delivery. At cost. So the restaurant yeah. doesn't have to pay, pay a fee. You don't have to pay a fee. You just get to order whatever favorite dishes you like from some of these restaurants and you just get to enjoy it at cost. And everybody wins that way. Now, obviously, delivery itself is a, uh, it can be expensive. He makes a good point. It does add up. But if you're going to do it, maybe do it and uh, save yourself and the restaurant some headaches.